Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church Podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. What do you call something that looks alive, sounds alive, but is not alive? Now, if you're a science fiction fan, your first response might be AI or some type of cybernetic organism like the Terminator. But if you're a horror fan or if you are necrophobic, your first response might be what we're going to talk about today, not being a zombie, not being something that looks alive, sounds alive, but is in fact spiritually dead. Now, George Romero, of course, has popularized the gory zombie, the shambling, uh, infectious zombie that if you get bitten, you're going to turn into a zombie. But there are many different kinds of zombies throughout mythology, throughout history. Today, we're going to talk about the kind of zombie that the Bible describes, which is not a physical zombie, but a spiritual zombie. The Apostle Paul talked about false brethren who come into the church to spy out our liberty. Jude, in his short epistle, warns about those who creep in unnoticed and who appear to be brothers and sisters in Christ, but who are, in fact, spiritually dead. I want to read a couple quotes from the late Adrian Rogers as we begin this morning. Dr. Rogers once wrote, Have you ever wondered what a church full of Pharisees would be like? Now let me stop there for a moment. You remember Jesus described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but inside rotting corpses dead men's bones, spiritual zombies shambling around, appearing to be alive, but in fact dead. Adrian Rogers said, have you ever wondered what a church full of Pharisees would be like? Number one, they would attend every service. They would all attend every service. Number two, they would all tithe. Number three, they would all work in the church. Number four, they would all go to hell. He also said, I believe that a great number of people are going to die and go to hell because they're counting on their religiosity in the church instead of their relationship with Jesus to get them to heaven. They give lip servants to repentance and faith, but they've never been born again. 
James wrote in James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James does not say faith without works is insufficient. He doesn't say that you need to add works to your faith to be saved. That's not what he says. He says that faith without works is dead. Because if it is true living faith, it will produce life. It will produce something. It might at times in our life, and there have been times in my life when it was just a very faint pulse that was beating as I was spiritually sleeping. And we've all had that moment where we're looking at our child in the bed and we're looking and making sure they're, they're breathing. And, and for whatever reason, they just seem like, and it's just, we, get, we focus in and, and we hold our breath until we see them take their breath. I think every parent has gone through that at one time or another. But James warns us that we can be physically appearing, spiritually sounding alive, talking about faith, knowing all the right answers to the questions, and yet not having, not possessing a true living faith. Faith without works is dead. Now, this might seem at first glance like a message better served for Halloween than New Year's Day, but this is where we are in the text, and so I think as we come to a New Year's Day where we often make New Year's resolutions, whether we make them officially or not, hopefully today is a day of new beginnings, new perspectives, a day of introspection, a day where we at the very least are thinking about things that should change in our life, and it needs to be a day where we as individuals and families, and churches, communities of faith, where we take time to evaluate where we are spiritually, where we're heading, and what God wants us to change in the coming year. And so this morning we're going to look at the fifth letter out of seven, the letter to Sardis, the living dead church. Now, before we jump into chapter 3, let me take just a moment to review what chapter 2 has taught us about the seven churches. We have so far looked at four of the seven churches. These are historic churches. These are representative churches, and they are prophetic. What does that mean? It means that these were seven literal places, literal churches at, at a literal time in history that had a specific message for them, but they are also representative or symbolic of churches that have always been and always will be. There are churches like all seven of these churches today, and in any church that has more than a couple members, any church that has more than a, a, a few months of history to it, you're going to find these seven types of people in every church. You're going to find in every church people who are spiritual zombies they look alive on the outside but inside they are spiritually dead they are dead men's bones but these are also prophetic 
churches. And we'll see that again today. Ephesus is the beloved church. The name means beloved. It is the love lost church, a church that has pure doctrine but lacking love. And roughly speaking, it reflects historically and prophetically the church from A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. Then follows Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh, myrrh, symbolizing the persecuted church. And again, we can look at this prophetically from A.D. 54 to A.D. 312. There were 10 official Roman persecutions and Jesus warned of 10 days of persecutions. This was a church that was wrestling with struggling with being blasphemed by and persecuted by what Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan, which is Judaism without its Messiah. Judaism without its Messiah does not worship Jehovah God in anything but name only. Jesus warned of those who acknowledge him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. And to those who would claim some of the Bible, the Old Testament, and deny their Messiah, claim the promises God gives to Israel and reject the king of Israel. Doesn't matter who the president is. The king of Israel is the seed of David. Yahuwah ben David, Jesus, son of David. Jesus says those who would hold such views are not the synagogue of Jehovah or Hashem, but the synagogue of Satan. Number three, Pergamos. Pergamos means married to the tower. This is the compromising church. And Jesus prophesied that there would, after 10 days of persecution, come a time when the church would no longer be publicly, officially, legally persecuted, but would, in fact, marry the state and become a state religion. And so the compromised church, roughly speaking, AD 312 to 8600 followed, of course, by Thyatira, the church of the continual sacrifice. Jesus said the church will someday continually try to sacrifice me over and over and over again, fulfilled, of course, in the corrupted church and its mass, roughly speaking, although we could debate some of these dates, AD 600 and continuing to this very day, because one of the things that we see when we get to the corrupted church whose compromise with the world led to corruption of the worship. This church who was given time to repent, meaning Jesus said, I'm going to give you space to repent. There is going to be an extended period of time offered to this particular church in which to repent. However, Jesus said she will not repent of her heresies. Jesus is making a distinction between the first three churches and the three first three churches and the last four churches. In letters one through three, Jesus makes promise to the overcomers at the end of the letter, after the body of the letter in the postscript. But in the last four, the promises are in the letter. Jesus is clearly drawing a distinction. You may, you may say, well, you're, you're stretching it, uh, DJ. Well, notice there's another distinction that Jesus makes in letters four through seven. In letters four through seven, Jesus uses terminology associated with the day of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is saying that these four churches 
will be different from the first three because all four of them will continue either up until the day of the Lord or even into the day of the Lord for those who are not truly saved and are spiritually dead. And we're going to see that more today. And Lord willing, we'll see it next week as well when we look at the church that does not go in to the tribulation because they are kept out of the judgment that is coming on the whole world. Now, again, in all seven letters, promises made to the overcomers, i.e. the true Christians. Every true Christian, 1 John tells us, is an overcomer. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. But it's also a reminder that even as we look at a spiritually dead church, Jesus is going to tell us there are still true Christians in those churches. And those Christians retain the promises that God makes to every true brother, every true sister in Christ. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that God deals with us both corporately, but also individually. You can be, as I believe, part of a Bible-preaching, living, alive church like ours, and still not be saved. Likewise, there are people who go to churches that do not preach the gospel. And for whatever reason, they themselves are Christians, but they remain in those churches. God's judgment on that church does not mean that because of corporate judgment that they're going to somehow individually lose their faith or lose their salvation. God's corporate judgments do not override his personal individual promises. And so we need to understand, though, that God does deal with us in both ways. He deals with us corporately. He deals with us nationally. We see this throughout the Old Testament. This shouldn't surprise us, right? Last year at this time, we were studying the prophet Elijah. We saw that God told Elijah that he has reserved thousands of people for himself. Now, when we look at that passage, we see that they're being reserved not for salvation. They already have salvation. They're being reserved from the national judgment that God is going to bring on the entire nation of Israel because of their Baal worship, because of their spiritual adultery and spiritual apostasy. God says, I have, I'm going to bring judgment down on the whole house except for those who I have reserved who are men and women who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there are corporate judgments, but there are also individual promises. Now, with all of that as way of review and introduction, let's look at this letter, this very serious letter, scathing letter to the living dead church of Sardis. Let's look at these six verses together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. Thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name 
out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. Now, in all of these letters, we have followed a similar pattern. Some of the pieces have moved around uh, as Jesus has stressed different things at different times. But generally speaking, Jesus had fo has followed the same pattern through these letters. And so let's very quickly look at, again, the opening address to the angel of the church in Sardis. Sardis means those escaped. Those escaped. Now, historically, the Gentiles in this first century church were born out of or had been saved out of, had at least come out of goddess worship. The goddess worship of Sybil, the mother goddess, and Artemis, a.k.a. Diana, who was, of course, worshipped uh, predominantly in Ephesus. Incidentally, some traditions, and when you get, when you get into mythology, we're, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but mythology can be very uh, confusing to study because even though uh, they call the gods or goddesses by the same name, some of them worship them under different traditions, historically, mythologically. However, some traditions link Artemis to the Egyptian Isis, to the uh, Canaanite Asherah, which might sound familiar if you, we just mentioned Elijah. Jezebel did not just introduce Israel to Baal worship, but also to the worship of Asherah or, or Ishtar, the Babylonian queen of heaven. And so this is, again, a link until the last letter, which talked about the Jezebel doctrine. The Jezebel doctrine of Thyatira most likely included the worship of the queen of heaven, given Jezebel's devotion to Asherah. And it is not a coincidence that the spiritual Thyatira today also worships a queen of heaven. Also speaks of a queen of heaven, the Jezebel heresy, the Jezebel doctrine. But again, prophetically. Now, there are some people who read this and see this and they say it's all coincidence. It's all coincidence. But friends, the coincidences are mounting. They are becoming mathematically improbable and soon to be math mathematically impossible. Jesus said that following the Thyatira church, the corruption of the worship, the continual sacrifice, there would be an event that would happen and there would be a mass exodus from that church. The Sardis movement, if you will. Out of what? Out of Thyatira. And of course, in 1517, is, which is, it, it really began before that, but it is generally officially recognized 1517 with the nailing of Martin Luther's declaration and thesis on the door of the church in Germany, the beginning of what we now call the Protestant Reformation took place. But isn't it interesting that what began as a great revival and exodus in the end did not produce the kind of world-changing spiritual revival that we would have anticipated or expected, but in fact did produce exactly what Jesus said. 
many, many churches with a reputation for being alive, but which do not actually preach the gospel, do not actually see people come to Christ. They are externally churches, but internally they are tombs for the spiritually dead. Now, how does Jesus introduce himself in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ? He emphasized his authority over both the seven spirits and the seven angels. Now, I'm not going to re-preach the message, so let me just remind you of where I stand. And I, I'm, again, I'm not going to re-preach this. I'm not going to go through all of the reasons why I take this position. But the seven spirits are not the Holy Spirit. Jesus does not possess the Holy Spirit. He is one with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, a very God, third person of the Trinity. He is not in the possession of the Father and the Son. He is not uh, a possession of God. He is God. The seven spirits are exactly what Jesus said they are. They are seven spirits. Most likely, we can't be dogmatic about this, but most likely these seven spirits, who remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, they are uh, uh, co-delivering this prophetic message to the church and to the world. Most likely these are the archangels, seven archangels, most likely. Again, we can't be dogmatic about that, but that seems to be the, the most consistent translation. We already know what the seven stars are. Jesus interpreted that for us as seven angels. And again, I'm not going to go through all the reasons that I hold this position, but I do not believe the seven angels are the seven pastors of the churches. They are exactly what Jesus said they are. The seven stars are the seven angels. Angel is not the symbol. It is the interpretation of the symbol, which is a star. Star is the symbol. Angel is Jesus' interpretation. We don't need to interpret it more than Jesus did for us. These are not seven pastors. They are seven angels. Now, why is that significant? Because what is Jesus is saying is, is saying, church, your faith does not need to be in your guardian angel. Your faith does not need to be in the angelic host. Your faith needs to be in me and in me alone. Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he is the one who created everything. He's the one who is before all things. He is the one who is over all things. The Father has placed all things under his feet. We're not going to take time to go back to Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1 and other places where this is stressed and emphasized. But there is no dominion. There is no principality. There is no power in all of the heavenlies, let alone in all of the physical realm that can in any way Match Jesus Christ. Be very wary of anyone who does a lot of talking about angels and their interaction with angels. The Bible warns us about people who talk about angels in ways. They talk about things we're told that they don't even know what they're talking about. They have no clue what they're talking about. Oh, they may be speaking to an angel, but it's not one of God's angels. And so be very, very careful of that. Jesus is the ultimate authority over all creation. Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. There's much more that we could say about that. 
that we don't have time to, but we will, Lord willing, in the future, get into all that that really means. But for now, know this. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Number three, the examination of the church. We're going to look at this in a couple different parts, three parts. Jesus changes the order up a little bit from what he normally uh, or how he normally presents this. But notice again the condemnation of this church. Jesus says to this church and every church, I know thy works and I have not found thy works The King James says perfect. The Greek literally means complete. I have not found thy works complete before God. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are actually a dead, spiritually dead church. And the reason that you are dead, yes, you have works, but your works are incomplete. Do you remember when Jesus was questioned about The most important commandment, see, there was a great debate in the first century about which of the Ten Commandments was the most important commandment, because why do you you want to know what the most important commandment is? Because you want to know which ones you can break and get away with, right, and which ones you better not break. Isn't Isn't that the truth? Mom and dad have two sets of rules. You know what they are. You know the rules that you can get away with breaking, and you know the rules you better not break. For me, it was don't come home late. Now, you know, I have a problem with punctuality. <laughs> one time, one time I, w- I got home late. Do you know why? Because that was a rule you do not break. Because my mom, some of you know, she's a worrier. If I'm 30 seconds late, I, I, there was a, you know, some, some great thing happened. So... I learned one time I was late and I learned after that, uh, that's a rule you don't break it at home. But you know what? There's other rooms like clean your room. <laughs> that wasn't one. That was a real rule. So what do we do? So what do we do? We, we bring that mentality to God. We think all oh, there's rules here that I can get away with breaking. God doesn't really care about. But there's other rules I better not break. We have that same. But see, God's not like our mom and dad. He's our heavenly perfect father, but he's not an imperfect father like our like our dads, like I am. So. The, they were debating, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus went off, off the track for what they were thinking. One, one of the t- ten commandments. Jesus said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thou shalt love thy neighbor. By the way, I'm going to give you the second greatest. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The whole Bible, Jesus said, hangs on these two commandments. You can summarize the entire Bible. And what did the, what did the uh, lawyer say that questioned Jesus? He said, that's a great answer, Jesus. That's a great answer. You're right. You better love the Lord your God most. You better love your neighbor as yourself. And what was Jesus then response to him? You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. You're not far. But what does it mean if you're not far? It means you're also not, not there yet. Jesus said, you're not far. You know the right answer, but you're not there yet. Because what? You haven't responded to it. How many people know the right answer? Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. They know the right answer. But there's never been a time in their life when they admitted that they were a sinner. And they really trusted in Christ alone. In His payment for sin. 
which was his blood and his death. With his resurrection, which was literal and physical, an actual empty tomb, they've never placed their faith and trust in the way, the truth, the life. Jesus said, no one comes in the Father except by me. And how do I know that? Because there are many Christians who sing the songs and they know the verses. And then when they're given surveys, they say, oh, yeah, you've, there's many ways to God. You don't have to come through Jesus. You don't have to come through Jesus. That's what many professing Christians say. And you know what I say? Uh, if, if that's really what you believe, then you're not really trusting in Jesus alone. And that means you're not really saved. You're not far. Your works are not complete. Your works are not complete. Sardis received the sharpest rebuke yet of these four churches. Now, it did, it did receive a short-term revival, but that revival lost steam really fast, and it became a revival in reputation only. Years ago, my dad preaching on this text said this, the church of the living God was soon replaced by the church of the living dead. And so from a prophetic standpoint, we have seen the Reformation, Christ prophesied the Reformation, which was a rejection of Rome's authority, but not a rejection of all of its errors. The Reformation largely, tragically produced creeds without conviction. Sola fide, sola scriptura, faith alone, scripture alone, lip service. Lip service given to those creeds. Early Bible translations Tyndale in 1526, Geneva 1587, King James 1611, not the same one I'm reading from today, by the way, because you would not be able to, I wouldn't be able to read it. You wouldn't be able to understand it. We have a, rev a revised King James from the 1611. Some of you may have a 1611 at home. You know what I'm talking about. Increased Bible knowledge. Massively increased Bible knowledge, but not an increase in obedience. I think it was John Wesley, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm 99% sure it was John Wesley who said of his own denomination that he started within a few years of starting it, he bemoaned the fact that not much had changed, that the hearts of the people were still lukewarm, that there was not the passion for Christ that he had hoped to see in his own denomination. From a prophetic standpoint, we see what happened in the Reformation, but let's talk practically here for a moment. What does it mean to us practically? Jesus warns, you have a reputation, but you are spiritually dead. It's a reminder to all of us that it isn't enough to have a Christian name. It's not enough to go to a Christian school. I'm passionate about CCA. I've... Uh, graduated from CCA. I taught at CCA. I have the privilege of serving on the school board at C CCA. I also know from my time with CCA that many, many young men and women come through that school without a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Many profess, but many do not possess what they profess. Not enough to know the right answers. There must be repentance and faith. Now, why did this church have a good reputation? Because understand, 
Sardis was a city known for two things, wealth and decadence. Wealth and decadence. It is said that there was literal gold dust that could be seen floating on the river that ran through the market of Sardis. It was incredibly wealthy. It was incredibly decadent. And apparently the people that had come out of the Sibyl worship and had come out of the Artemis worship or Diana worship and had joined this church did not live in the decadence that the people around them lived. They weren't decadent. They were different. And so they were known as those Christ-like followers. But Jesus says to them and to us, Reformation without revival does not produce resurrection. It is not enough to have a reformed life if you are not living a resurrected life. It's not enough to clean the outside of the cup if you're still filthy on the inside and there's only one way to clean up what's on the inside. It's only one way. That's the blood of Jesus. That's the grace of God that's only received by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. You have to come admitting you are a sinner. This is what Jesus said himself. Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, what's the message, Jesus? What do you have to say to us? You've just risen from the dead. Jesus said, you better go preaching repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin. You better go tell people that I died and rose again and they need to repent to be cleansed of their sin and forgiven. That's what Jesus said. So these churches who don't want to preach repentance because they think it's a work are setting themselves up to be a Sardis church. This city, this church, excuse me, did not share in the sins of the city, but neither did it share in the life of the Savior. John chapter 3, it is not enough to be born. You must be born again. And the only way you can be born again is to be born of the Spirit. Born of water and of the Spirit, or more a better translation would be born of water, i.e. even the Spirit. Jesus using the spiritual water who is the Holy Spirit and comparing that to the water that comes when a child is born. Just as there is water, to put it nicely, when a human child is born, so there must be the water, the Holy Spirit, the spiritual water that is the Holy Spirit. He is the living water, Jesus said, in order to produce spiritual life. That's the only way that you can be spiritually saved. Spiritual life requires a spiritual birth. Of Sardis, William Barclay wrote, in any church there is... Nothing to be so much desired as peace. But in any church, there is nothing to be so much feared as the peace, which is the peace of death. The peace of languorous lethargy, the peace which, has, which had descended on Sardis and its church. Now let's get to the examination. I don't want to leave you in the graveyard today. <laughs> How many of you have seen The Princess Bride? I don't know if anybody will be offended by this, but it's still one of my favorite movies. I love, love The Princess Bride, and I love 
all of the characters, I just want to quote, no, I'm not doing the marriage quote, don't, don't get excited, but um, if you remember, I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, but uh, Wesley appears to have died, but they don't want to give up, so they take his body to Miracle Max, and Miracle Max says, mostly dead is slightly alive. Notice what Jesus says here in verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. There was, even in this dead church, there was some spiritual life left in Sardis. And why was that? Because notice verse 3, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Because the message of truth was still available to them. I can't tell you, and so I don't get offended if you do this, because I, I do this all, did this all the time when I'm not preaching, right? I, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm OCD, okay? So I'm, and I'm also ADD, so... This is why I'm up here, right? This, I get the most out of it when I'm studying for the message and I'm preaching the message because when I'm sitting and listening, I'm ping-ponging all over the place. So what, I, so what I often do is, you know, pastor will say, turn and read this, and I'm reading this verse, and then he's going on and talking about other stuff, and I'm still reading these verses, I'm still reading these verses, I'm still reading these verses. And then I'm like, oh, whoa, where am I? I? I got lost, right? So if you get lost, that's okay, all right? You can get caught up. We are in Revelation chapter 3, haven't gone anywhere yet. Here's the point. If this book is in a building, there's hope for you. Even if the pastor's not preaching it, guess what? Reformation produced many, many translations. Many, many translations in people's language. There was a proliferation of the Bible that had not yet existed in human history. And that means that the Bible is available to you. You don't have to come and wait and hear me speak in Latin and go home saying, I didn't get a word of that. I never learned Latin. I'm just a poor peasant. No, no, no. You get to take this home with you. You get to have it. I don't have my phone on me, but you get to have it on your phone. There are many times when I think, where's that verse in the Bible? Or sometimes you say, uh, Siri, what's, uh, you know, Hebrew such and such? And she'll pull it up. We have incredible access. And so there is hope. The truth is available to this dead church. And remember, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to them that believe, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, which is from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. The gospel has the power to speak life to the spiritual dead. God does not need to save you so he can save you. The gospel is supernatural. It has the supernatural power to speak life to a dead spirit and to offer life to a dead spirit. And you can respond by faith. But you got to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to receive grace. That's God's 
decision, not mine. That's not my opinion or interpretation. That's God's word. And so the circumstances of this church are not hopeless. But here's the challenge to the church. Jesus demands three things of this church. Number one, self-examination. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Be watchful. Now that word might not jump off the page to you, but I guarantee you it jumped off the page to the men and women of Sardis because the history of Sardis was a history of tragic surprises. This city was once a great, powerful city in the region. In fact, it was considered impregnable because of its natural defenses, one of them being the mountain along the side of which it was built. And it was thought to be an unclimbable, unscalable, unattackable mountain, and so the city was safe. But twice, twice in its history, somebody found that secret path up the back of the mountain and got into the city into a part that was a part of the wall that was left unguarded because it was thought we don't need to guard that and the city fell twice because of the same error the first time it happened there was a soldier who who saw somebody up on the battlement their helmet fell off and the soldier all of a sudden they saw the soldier disappear and then they were looking and they were watching and then they saw the soldier all of a sudden they start walking down the mountain. The guy said, oh, he's not a deer. There must be a path there. And sure enough, he picked up his helmet and he saw him walk back up and he said, I'm going to memorize where that is. And he led a detachment of soldiers up there and they conquered the city. Happened twice. Then in 87, I think it was 8017, there was an earthquake that took the, the city by surprise. And, and it was only because of the generosity of Tiberius that they were able to rebuild the city this city had known its surprises and to this church that knew its history Jesus said don't think it can't happen to you church don't think it can't happen to Memorial Heights don't think it can't happen if we let our guard down if we let the devil infiltrate with false teaching and false gospels we need self-examination as individuals, as churches, as family. I hope you are taking time today and this week to honestly assess where you are spiritually. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 said, Examine yourselves to see whether ye be in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you really have personal faith in Jesus Christ? Or are, just, are you just along for the ride? Self-examination. Number two, commitment to Scripture. Commitment to Scripture. Remember how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. Remember what you have heard and received, and you better hold this fast. This, you better not be relying on Pastor DJ to give you all of the Word of God that you need. I don't have enough time every week. You need to be in this word for yourself. You need to be in this word every day. You have access to it. You have access that the first century did not have. This church had unique access because they received a letter. They received this book before everybody else, this, this book of Revelation, one of seven to get it before everybody else. 
And Jesus said to them, you better hold on to what you've been given and you better receive and you better listen. Commitment to the scriptures. And then number three, and here's what it always comes down to, church, personal response. Repent. Doesn't matter what your spouse does, what your kids do, what your parents do. Doesn't matter with your, what your neighbor, your boss, your classmate, your teacher. Doesn't matter what the preacher does or the deacon. Doesn't, it matters before God what you have done. You are personally responsible and accountable for your life. And so if you need to leave something behind in 2022, don't wait until 2024 to make that decision. Do it today. Don't wait till Monday. Don't wait till next week. Don't, don't think about it. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something, leave it here. Whether you come to the altar or you do it where you're standing in just a few minutes, leave it here. Repent. Repent. Here's, because here's the warning, I, and we'll, we'll get more into this next week, but verse 3, if, it, if you do not repent, Jesus is coming as a thief. He's coming as a thief in the night. Now, I know this is debated. I'm not going to get time. I don't have time this morning to unpack this, but this is a clear reference to the rapture. Jesus is the thief in the night. Jesus is coming to take something from this world, and he's going to do it at an hour when you do not expect. And you're either going with him or you're being left behind. And to this spiritually dead church, Jesus says, you better be ready. This may be the year. And whatever it happens, whatever the year, when it happens, it's going to be the twinkling of an eye. And it will be too late to do your self-examination. It will be too late to dig into the scriptures because you will not be with the Lord. You will be with the world in the day of his wrath. And if you think it's been bad in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, you read the rest of this book. You're going to find out. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You're going to find out. The warning to the church is you better be sincere because counterfeit Christians are not going with us when the rapture occurs. And so here's the commendation. We're almost done. Verse 4, thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which has not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, Sardis was known as a center of trade in wool, white clothing, wool, and in dyed clothing like Ephesus. They, one of the ways they made their money was through the sale of wool and expensive dyed clothing. Jesus said, I don't care how you dress, when you come to church, I care how you dress when you come with me. And your robes better be white. And by the way, there's only one way to make them right and to make them white. And that's to let Jesus do the cleansing, to let his blood wash your sin whiter than snow. Reputation with men means nothing in eternity. Reputation with men means nothing in heaven. You think you're going to take your title with you to heaven? You think you're going to take your bank account with you to heaven? You think you're going to take your, your uh, athletic trophies with you to when you get to heaven? None of that's going to matter. The only thing that matters is do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, speaking of the cross. That's what matters. And so for those who know Jesus, here's the promise to him that overcometh. I'm going to just cover these. Boom, boom, boom. 
Three things, not going to unpack them. To him that overcometh, three things I'm going to give you. White raiment, okay? I will not blot out his name in the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. Three things. You will have a judicial righteousness. That means Jesus legally declares you righteous in the court of heaven. You say, I I'm still sinning, pre preacher. Yeah, we all are. Guess what? We're all still sinning. First John 1, if you think you're not sinning anymore, you are deceived. But if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a judicial righteousness, white raiment that he gives you because of his righteousness credited to you. Number two, judicial reality. Judicial reality. It's final. It's eternal because it's final. The forgiveness is final. He is not going to blot your name out of the book of life if you know him. If his blood has washed your sin, there's nothing that can blot out your name from the book of life. And number three, a judicial ruling. That means it's going to be public and it's going to be pronounced. It's not just on the books. It doesn't, it's not awaiting anybody's signature. Not awaiting somebody. It's not, it's not open to veto. It is a judicial ruling. I will confess his name before my father and his angels. And everybody's going to know. You belong to me. But friend, we close like we always do as Ramona comes to play the invitation. The call to heed the Spirit. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is not my opinion. This is not church dogma. This is God's word. This is Jesus speaking then and the spirit speaking now to you and to me are you listening stand up with me as we close father it's a heavy message to begin the year but god we thank you that there is even for counterfeit christians the hope of real forgiveness and real life through repentance and through faith in you your death your resurrection Father, for some of us, it's not the problem of a false Christianity, but it's the promise of a broken faith, a broken Christianity. God, we are allowing the spiritual death to creep all around us. We're allowing our lives, God, to be unwatchful. God, may we leave the sins of this past year behind today. May we come boldly before the throne of grace right now to find mercy and grace in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, the altar is open if you have a need. Come now.
be our sincere prayer, not just today, but every day this year. We love and praise you. Thank you for the life, the forgiveness of all sin that is available through Jesus Christ, our Lord, your son, the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you again. Happy New Year. If you have a need, I'll be here after the service. Hope to see you Wednesday night at our prayer meeting. God bless. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.